This morning, we have a guest speaker, Mr. Pat Ennis, who's been here before, a longtime friend of Christ Church, a pastor at Covenant Life. And so, would you help me in welcoming Pat? Thanks. Thank you, Tyler. And um, you can turn in or turn on your Bibles to John 2, chapter 13, uh, verse 13. Uh, thanks for letting me come back again. I, it's always good to come here. We love coming here. And uh, thank you, too, for freeing up Matt to, to uh, go and preach and teach at our worthy conference for the youth at Covenant Life Church. It's just another example of how we feel so closely tied to you in this church and the partnership that we have. And Todd Kaler, who, who, who leads that event, may be the most excited guy in the whole area because Matt was able to join him there this morning. But on behalf of the, the entire elder team at uh, Covenant Life, thank you for allowing Matt to, to join them there. And so hence, you, you got the short end of the stick. Here I am with you this, this morning. So John 2, starting in verse 13, going through verse 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. <clears throat> and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Father, we pray that you would bless us abundantly this morning as we open your word, and we, we pray that you would give us wisdom, insight, and understanding into it, Lord. We, please help us to see the glory of Jesus manifested. Lord, please help us to receive grace upon grace, and please build and strengthen our faith as we remember, Jesus, that you are the King and Savior, Messiah, and New Temple. We submit these things, Father, to you in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen. 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 So there's a story. There is a story about the great Babe Ruth. Some of you youngsters may not know who Babe Ruth is, but he's arguably or inarguably the greatest baseball player I've ever, that ever played the game. Well, there's a story about him uh, visiting England and being invited to have an audience with King George. And prior to visiting the king, the Sultan of Swat was schooled in proper etiquette and how to approach and inter interact with a monarch. However, upon arrival to, to meet King George, the babe simply walks in and true to form says, Hiya, king. 
<clears throat> despite all the coaching and the prep, the babe decided to do what seemed right in his own eyes instead of what's customary and expected. When greeting the king of a thousand-year monarch and one of the most powerful countries in the world. Not sure what king, how King George responded to, to the babe in this situation. The consequences for the babe and his actions seem to only enhanced and strengthened the myth and the legend of the great Bambino. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which is our story this morning, is another much more serious, much more egregious situation when a group of people did what was right in their own eyes when approaching the king of all kings, the almighty and holy, holy, holy God, in a high a king sort of way. <clears throat> it's a story that clearly illustrates that God cares about how we worship him. It's a story about the glory of Jesus being manifested as the new temple of God. And like the entire Gospel of John, it's a story that builds and strengthens our faith when remembered. A few years ago, when you, you all went through, you'll, you'll remember, you went through the book of John, and as you did, you might also remember how the following, these following three verses uh, guided you in what you would look for in each sermon and each passage. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And in verse 116, from, from, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then finally, John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Based on those, the, those verses, uh, there were three presenting questions that you used to apply to each sermon and each passage of Scripture. And the questions were, how is Jesus seen to be glorious in this passage, in this sermon? How do we see grace upon grace coming to us in the story? And how can this passage strengthen my belief and faith in Jesus? And with that last verse in question, John sums up, really, the purpose for writing his gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In telling the story of Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine at Cana, just John was right on target with this purpose. The glory of Jesus was manifested and they believed in him when they saw the sign of the water being turned in, into wine. And in today's story, we're going to see that John's purpose is again accomplished as when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, if you've read all four Gospels, uh, you may have noticed that while John has his story about cleansing the temple, happening here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after the, the wedding of Cana, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus cleansing the temple toward the end of his ministry. And this, of course, has been the subject of much critical uh, biblical theory through, through the years, decades. But at this point, most scholars believe that John had it right, 
but so did Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus, that Jesus did indeed clear the temple early on in his ministry. And once again, toward the end, and it's not tough to believe this. Uh, it's not tough to believe because it's easy to imagine that the money changers and the merchants in this story just simply went right back to doing what they were doing after Jesus left and requiring Jesus to go back again later and do it all over again. So it's not hard, hard to imagine that. <clears throat> As the story begins, as it, as it gets started here, we see in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals that all Jewish men were to attend. And they were to attend at the place that the Lord God chose to put his name and make his habitation according to the law of Moses. The place that the Lord had chosen at this point in the biblical story was the temple in Jerusalem. And this was the second temple reconstructed by King Herod. And so Jesus, of course, is going to be there. He was a Jewish male over age 20. And uh, along with Jesus, according to historical accounts, there is going to be about 2 million other people, uh, worshipers from all over the Roman Empire, coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so let's keep this in mind as we go through the story. This would have been a time for the merchants of Jerusalem to make hay, so to say. It would be like the Super Bowl uh, coming to town in regard to the increased commerce and business. The Passover would have been a major boon to the local economy, with merchants probably making most of their annual revenue during, during this period of time. So understandably, there would be a zeal for trade and business. The problem was that the zeal for doing business at some point made its way from outside the temple of God to inside the temple of God. The section of the temple referenced here is what's called the, uh, referred to as the, the court of the Gentiles, which was an outer court of the temple and designated for anyone not Jewish who was interested in God and in worshiping God. It was in this court of the Gentiles that Jesus found the merchants and found the money changers doing transactions, the ox, oxen, the sheep, the pigeons, doing everything animals do, making whatever loud, disturbing, distracting noises that they make. There would have been the hustle and bustle of people coming and going, doing transactions. And then at least some in this court of the Gentiles, at least some faith-filled Gentiles trying to pray and worship in the midst of it all. It was loud, noisy, chaotic, probably somewhat smelly, and yet this was the house of the almighty sovereign God where he was to be worshipped and reverence and all. <clears throat> this is what Jesus, the son of God, walked into. The chosen place where God the Father in his glory dwells now turned into a loud chaotic house of commerce and trade. 
Well, in a second, we're going to see Jesus' response to all this. But first, we should ask this question. We see, why were the money changers and the merchants and the animals in, inside in the temple? Were there good reasons for them to be there? Well, you might think so, <clears throat> knowing that they're actually providing needed and desired services. Let's remember that these faithful pilgrims, these two million or so people, many of them, they're traveling long distances to attend Passover. So that makes it very impractical, doesn't it, to drag along all of your, your oxen, your sheep, your pigeons, and and everything else for the sacrifices and offerings. It would be much more convenient and expedient to show up to town and then just buy them there. Okay? Then the money changers were needed as there was an annual temple tax. And the temple only accepted a certain coinage considered the most pure. Every male 20 years of age or older was expected to pay the tax, so they needed someone on site to exchange their hometown currency for the uh, temple currency. So it's understandable, isn't it, that there were going to be some enterprising, entrepreneurial folks who were just more than happy to fulfill these legitimate needs. Again, the problem was where they were fulfilling these legitimate needs. So now, so now Jesus is in the temple, and this is when everything starts to go sideways for, for the money changers and the merchants. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and never turned the tables. In the midst of all this chaos, <laughs> picture this, in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus finds cords, and then takes the time needed to make a whip, makes the whip. Just, this is an illustration, I think, of how deliberate and committed he was to this. I mean, this is the same Jesus that raised people from the dead, who turned water into wine, who stilled the ocean, filled nets with fish, told the fish where to go. Couldn't he have just said, oxen leave? And, but no, he, he found cords so for whatever that means, it, it absolutely indicates a deliberate commitment. He then uses the whip to drive the oxen and the sheep and, and all of the money changers and merchants out of the temple. So now the oxen and the sheep and the merchants, they're on the move. And oxen are big and they're moving. Everybody's moving. Jesus pours out the coins and the money changers overturn and, and overturn their table. So now you've got the coins rolling around on the floor. Guys scrambling around to get their coins in the midst of the oxen and that are running out the door. And so the already loud and crazy atmosphere just got more nuts, got, just got more crazy and loud with Jesus' actions here. And then, and then in the midst of all this, Jesus says to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Before, before we get into why trade in the father's house is bad, let's first remember what the father's house is. This is what Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 12 after they worshipped the golden calf. 
You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and, con- and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and all your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So the house of God that Jesus is so zealous about is the place that the Father chose to put his name and make his habitation. It's where God dwells and his people and faith bring their tithes and offerings. They have their sin atoned for. They commune with God through prayer and worship God with rejoicing. And so we see here in Deuteronomy 12, and then too in Jesus' response here at the temple to what's going on, that God cares how we worship him. God provides specific instruction there in Deuteronomy 12 as to what to do and what not to do, as well as many other passages of Scripture that we won't mention here this morning. And we see that God cares how we worship him in witnessing Jesus, the Son of God, making a whip and then cleansing the Father's house from distractions as to how he was being worshipped. God cares, God cares, God cares as to how we worship him. Okay, but why is the trade in the temple so bad when needed services, these needed services, for worship of God are being provided. Why is Jesus so amped up about all this? Well, the trade taking place in the temple was bad because there was a lack of the fear of God. And we know that because Psalm 147.11 says this, God takes pleasure in those who fear him. Clearly, Jesus was not taking pleasure in those responsible for trade happening in the temple that day. He was not taking pleasure in those who were saying, Hiya, king. There was a lack of the fear of God. That was bad. Trade in the temple was bad because it only resulted in constant distraction from what God's house is all about, his presence, worship, and communion with his people. We can also see in the other Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, what trade can quickly turn into when Jesus accuses the money changers there and the merchants of being robbers. And if you're a robber, you're in violation of at least two two of the Ten Commandments, and, and hence there's a lack of fear of God there too. What's at stake with these trade activities in the temple is what we're commanded to in Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So for these reasons and more, Jesus was angry, righteously angry, about the trade that was happening in his father's house. And so Jesus' disciples, they've been watching all of this go down. Uh, And at some point, they remembered this verse from Psalm 69, David's Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. 
We know that David, his zeal was for to a consuming consuming zeal was to build a house, a temple for God. And we know too that God didn't have David do it, he had Solomon his son do it. Well, now the disciples have remembered this verse, zeal for your house will consume me, after having a front row seat to see Jesus put himself at risk and honor his father's house that day. Then at some point, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? An interesting observation here and, and at this point is that John gives us no indication that the temple authorities did anything to stop Jesus from what he was doing. Almost like they knew he was right. They didn't stop him from doing it, but they wanted proof that he had prophetic or messianic authority to make the changes that he was facilitating. That's at least an outward reason for the Jews asking for a sign. And of course, we know Jesus responded with, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. The Jews wanted a sign. Jesus didn't give them a sign. But the fact of the matter is, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, Jesus did have authority to make changes in the temple that day. And as he did make changes, his glory was manifested as the true Son of God. Of course, we know that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. But the Jews didn't get it then, and neither did the disciples until later. So now, now today, this morning, today, the temple or the house of God is no longer building. Jesus is the temple, the place where God meets his people, manifests his presence, and deals with our sin. Jesus is glorified as he is now God's chosen place where true worshipers worship. That's why Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well that an hour is coming when true worshipers will no longer worship in Jerusalem, but will worship in spirit and truth. But guess what? <clears throat> guess what? We too, those of us in Jesus this morning, we too, his church are the temple of God. Paul, we know this. Paul tells us this. He told us this in 1 Corinthians when he wrote, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? And then in 2, 6, Corinthians, 2, um, 2 Corinthians 6, you are the temple of the living God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul stated that the members of the church are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple or house of God today, this morning, is no longer a building, but it's Jesus Christ and his people, Jesus and his church. And in this truth, in his fullness, we see grace upon grace as his people. So in this story, where can we see the glory of Jesus? Well, we can see the glory of Jesus as he had the authority as the Son of God in cleansing the Jerusalem temple. And we see his glory as the new and true temple of God. We see the glory of Christ as he, with his Father and the Spirit, raised his body on the third day after having 
it destroyed on the cross for our sins. Where can we see grace upon grace coming to us? When we remember the cleansing of the temple, the temple, we should also remember how Christ has cleansed us with mercy and grace by his suffering, death, and resurrection. He risked his life to cleanse the temple and gave his life on the cross at Calvary to cleanse us from our sin. Grace upon grace. And now as his chosen ones, he lives in us and through us. It's by faith that we live, uh, by faith in the Son of God that we live. He graciously continues to cleanse us now in conforming us to his image. So much grace upon grace we can see in the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And then how should this story build our faith? Well, verse 22 says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. Like the disciples, let's have our faith in Jesus strengthened as we remember that he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up because indeed he did raise it up. He did raise it up. He is risen. That should build our faith this morning. He said it, and it happened, and we know it. And let's have our faith built and strengthened as we remember that Jesus remains today zealous for the house of God, just like he was then. And we're part of that house. That should build and strengthen our faith. So then finally, how should we then evaluate our lives today? in light of this story and the truth that Jesus, with us, his people, are now the temple of God? Well, here's some, here's some questions. <clears throat> Am I zealous about what Jesus is zealous about? What consumes me? Am I consumed with zeal for Jesus and his people? Does my zeal look like an offering to God of acceptable worship with reverence and awe? As a disciple of Jesus, are there tables that need to be overturned in my life or coins that need to be dumped out? Perhaps distractions that in essence aren't bad. Maybe they're good things. But things that I know I continually, that continually keep me from worshiping God in spirit and truth. Is the way I'm living defiling Jesus and his church in any way? Am I at all living in a higher king sort of way? So, as we close, let's remember what this story shows us. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, tells us, is of first importance. We can see it in this story. We can see what Paul said in Corinthians 1.15 in this story. One, for, the, verse, the passage says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's remember when we read the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and really all of Scripture, 
that the ultimate demonstration of Christ's zeal for his people, for the house of God, was when he willingly suffered and was crucified on the cross, receiving the full wrath of his Father, cleansing his people, us, of our sins. That was the ultimate demonstration of Christ's zeal for the house of God. And we can believe this good news this morning because Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And indeed he did do that. He is risen this morning. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words. Thank you for this story. John, thank you for John's gospel and how, and how John's gospel helps us to see, Lord, your glory, grace upon grace, and it indeed, each story strengthens our faith when we remember them. And Lord, help us to see these things more clearly, please. Please help us to see these things more clearly. And we want to join you, Lord, in exalting Jesus this morning. Help us to do that today and for the rest of our lives. Help us to be zealous like him for, for, for you, for your glory, and for your people. Lord, please help us today and every day to do that. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.